been really good to um, hear the worship and the words brought this morning because they tie in perfectly with it. Um, just a spoiler, we're going to be looking at Jesus in the Old Testament um, for the next couple of months. And the general theme of that is the gospel is all the way through. So it's been great this morning to be reminded so much of the gospel already. I wanted to start off by just talking through something that happened recently that I feel illustrates why we're going to be looking at the Old Testament and Jesus in the Old Testament and why it's such an important topic. And that was the fact that I survived my family a trip to a certain well-known flat-packed furniture kind of um, uh, shop uh, just down the road from here. And the important bit is we got home afterwards, all, all unscathed. We had a kind of a shelving unit on the floor in the lounge. There were 45 minutes before I had to start getting the kids in bed. And I thought to myself, are we going to do it? Are they going to help me? Are we going to get this up? Am I going to get the evening to myself when they're in bed without this to do? Let's go for it. Esther, who's seven, was looking so excited. She had her eyes on the hammer. She was definitely going to be doing that bit. I started unfolding the leaflet, one of those concertina ones that just gets bigger and bigger. It got about this long, then you start folding it down. Ended up with a map this big, and her eyes went wide. Dad, I don't think we can do this before Joel needs to be in bed. This is going to take hours. She saw about a 100 different pages, and I had to explain to her that no, Every little kind of panel of that instruction leaflet was the complete instructions. It's just the instructions were repeated lots and lots of different times. It was the same story told again and again and again. And actually, if I had defaulted to the first one, my Swedish is not brilliant. I would have been quite stuck. But luckily, someone had put it in a language that made sense to me, and I just had to um, search. It was kind of the fifth row down, third one across on the back. But eventually, I got to English, and I could work out what I was meant to be doing. And I'm not saying that the Bible is exactly like some IKEA instructions. It's a bit better than those, but there's two things that it did remind me of for this series. And the first one is, I think often we can be quite afraid of how big this is. I brought in a small version of the Bible, but even the small one, we're literally looking at 980-something pages of Old Testament before we get to the bit that I think sometimes we feel is the good bit. There's a thousand pages of Old Testament in there, and the point is we shouldn't be scared of it. it the, the Bible is deep and rich. A lifetime of looking at it with God's Spirit helping us, will not exhaust its riches, but it's also very simple. It's the same story told again and again and again. It's one story that goes from the beginning to the end of our creation to live with God, of us falling short of his plan for us, and of God rescuing us, the gospel, restoring us to himself. It happens time and time again. It's shown all the way through the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. It's not a hundred or a thousand pages of different stories. It's one big story. And the second thing is, I mean, the Bible, just in terms of a literary work, is amazing. It's got so many different types of um, writing in it. It's got epic narration of big events like the creation of the world. It's got the history of nations across hundreds of years. It focuses in and looks at the history of individuals and families across generations. There's poetry in there. There's a book of 150 sets of song, song lyrics. There's love poetry. There's visions of the future, including kind of apocalyptic ones of the end of the world. There's the story four times over of one man, Jesus Christ. 
and the history of the church that was founded after his death and resurrection. And then there are some, I mean, almost academic level kind of um, pastoral letters, but with such detailed explanation of the entire story, you know, Paul's letters in particular, that really explain what's going on, but in seemingly a really complicated way. There's all these different forms of writing in the Bible, and they are all telling the same story, and a bit like those different panels in different languages, different ones will speak to our hearts at different times in our lives. Different ones of those will speak to you more than others. But they are all telling the same story. God's story. Uh, by looking at all of them, we get to see the picture more fully. So that's one of the reasons we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. Because Ikea said so. There's, there's better reasons. Jesus said so as well. In the New Testament... He was um, kind of being hassled by the Pharisees and the scribes. And he came back to them and said, you study the scriptures diligently. Now, at that time, the scriptures were the Old Testament. None of the New Testament had been written. You study them diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus said that the Old Testament testifies about him. In fact, it says that Jesus is the central character of the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. He's described as the Alpha and Omega, that's the A to the Z, the beginning to the end, and he spans the entire thing. There might be a quote coming up, there might not be. If it comes up, it's going to say, everything before Christ anticipates him, and everything after Christ expounds him. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. Specifically, we're going to look in this series at how Jesus appears throughout the Old Testament. And it might be useful over the coming months to think about those appearances, those mentions of Jesus in one of three different ways. Okay, The first one is not the most common. There are times where Jesus is described as being present. Fully present. Now, as part of the Trinity, as being fully God, Jesus is omnipresent. He's everywhere all of the time. But there are times where he is manifestly present. He's absolutely there in an unmistakable way. And that happens a few times through the Old Testament. The first time it happens is at the very beginning. Genesis 1 starts off by saying, in the beginning, God which is a great start, just those four words. Stop there and think about that one. In the beginning, God. But he created the heavens and the earth, whereas John's gospel starts off, in the beginning was the word. He was with God as he was God, describing Jesus Christ. Through him, all things were made. People often pick up that in Genesis, it talks about God creating, and people assume that's God the Father. And it talks about the Holy Spirit, who is hovering over the waters, the breath of God. But actually, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus is specifically present. The entirety of creation happens because of him. The second way that he appears all the way through the Old Testament is that he is promised. He's promised to us. That often takes the form of prophecies. Prophecies about Jesus, about his birth, 
about his life, about his resurrection. Haven't been out in Alpha for the last couple of months. It's been great um, to get to to know people out there, but also watching the videos is great. And what sticks in my mind every time, the one on the Bible brings out the fact that, depending on how you count them, there's between 300 and 500 prophecies about Jesus that are made in the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled. That is a lot of mentions of Jesus in the Old Testament. He is all the way through it. And it's not just the minor and the major prophets near the end of the Old Testament where that happens. The Psalms continuously talk about him. But as we see today, Genesis 3, when we get on to today's session, the fall in the Garden of Eden, Jesus is very much promised there. It happens all the way through. And then the last way that we see Jesus in the Old Testament during this series is that he is often patterned. What that means is there are characters from the Old Testament and actually sometimes situations described in the Old Testament that tell us something about what Jesus is going to be like. It might be that God has put them in place and they've got similar qualities to Christ and they're kind of a spoiler for what he's going to be like. Some of the time... They are completely opposite to him. That's what we're going to see today with Adam. Adam gets stuff wrong. Christ gets the same stuff right. And that opposite is a great way of teaching about it. But we're going to see that Jesus is present, promised, but also patterned in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that means the gospel runs all the way through this book from beginning to the end. We're going to jump into Genesis 3. And having done that general introduction, we are going to do a whistle-stop tour of this. There's much, much more that could be said. We're going to jump into Genesis 3, um, and it says at first, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, "You, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
before we start comparing and contrasting Adam with Christ, we need to focus in on Adam before and after the fall because his character changes so much. His circumstances change so much. And I'm just going to pick out a couple of things about Adam and Eve before the fall. There is much more we can talk about. I'm not even really going to go into the image of God that they're created into. Instead, I'm going to focus first on the fact that at the beginning, they are described, Adam and Eve, as being naked but having no shame. I just want you to imagine for a moment a world in which you do not feel any shame at that thought that you're having. A world where you don't just never... You, you, it's not just that you know you shouldn't feel guilty. I want you to imagine a world where you never feel guilty. Where you've therefore got no fear of others or of God, and you don't feel the need to hide anything from them. Where, actually, you can be completely open, absolutely transparent, 100% honest. Because that is what God created in the beginning. That's what he wants for us. He doesn't want us hiding. He doesn't want us to feel guilt. He wants something else. The second thing about Adam and Eve before the fall is that they are in the presence of God. They see him face to face. We've seen that actually the Lord God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. And for thousands of years, Jewish thought has been, he came at the same time every day. He had a regular standing kind of appointment with them to wander through the garden talking to them. That is what we were created for, to spend a lifetime in the presence of God, seeing him face to face. And that lifetime, the third thing about Adam and Eve before the fall, we're not told about, told about the mechanics and how this worked, but in some way, Adam and Eve were immortal. They were created to live. They were not created to die. They were meant to be in the presence of God in paradise forever. But then, something went very, very wrong. There was temptation, and mankind failed in that temptation. We gave in to it. And there's two things I want to draw out of how that happened, because I think that they apply today, because we are still tempted, and we have the Holy Spirit to help us resist, but if we know how temptation normally happens, we can be wise to it. And we can stand strong in God. The first thing is that the serpent, he subtly misrepresents God. It's subtle. But first of all, he subtly misrepresents God's character. You'll have noticed in some of the, um, in, in, at the very top of that, it says, the Lord God. That's not a repetition for the sake of it. There's two different words in the original Hebrew, one of which basically means the Lord Almighty, the all-powerful one, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. But the other word contrasts with that, and the two together give us a better idea of who God is. Because the second word, the one translated God, means the personal covenant provider. 
When you bring both together, we know that God is awesome, majestic, holy, inapproachable in some ways, but that he's also our friend. He looks out for us. He's gracious towards us and gives what we need, and he wants to talk to us face to face. And those two together are so important. And as soon as the serpent talks, he doesn't use both those words. He chooses only one of them. It's not a lack of respect. It's a twisting of God's character because he just uses the word that means boss or ruler. Did your ruler really say? He ignores what God is like. And I think we sometimes do that too. He also subtly misrepresents God's words. God has said that they are allowed to eat from any of the trees in the garden, but not from this one, lest they die. Just to avoid this one, it's not going to be good for you. And the serpent completely twists that. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? I mean, that's a bit onerous. That's not really fair. I mean, you might as well ignore that. That's... you can't. That's not possible. Just, I mean, he can't have meant it. Just, just ignore it and take this fruit. As well as changing God's character, he tries to change God's words in this tempting. And I think key for us is the fact that we see that Eve succumbs to both. When she answers him, she replies, God said, not the Lord God. She doesn't give both parts. The ruler said, she doesn't think of God in her reply as being a personal provider to her, as being her friend. But she also twists his word. She adds in a bit of text that was never there. God said that we can't eat from this one tree or even touch it. She's made that up completely, following Satan's lead. I think there are times where we forget, maybe on purpose, what God is like. And we make God's commands to us seem more difficult than they actually are so that we've got that excuse for going against him. I think we need to be on guard against that. And the second thing about the temptation that I just want to reflect quickly is who it is who falls. This passage has been misused through the centuries to say that because Eve was the one to take the fruit first, that women were the ones who fell, and that's why women are less than men in some sense. And that just doesn't come through in this text in the slightest. In the New Testament, the blame is put squarely on the shoulders of Adam. And in the text here, it is clear that Adam is next to his wife all the way through this entire process. He doesn't walk in a bit later after it's gone wrong and get ambushed. He was next to her when the serpent tempted her and he said nothing. He did nothing, despite the fact that he was equipped to do so. Because when God originally gave the command about the trees of the garden, he gave them to one person only. Eve hadn't been created. It was only Adam. Adam is meant to pass this warning on and fails abysmally. But actually... That's not the most important part of this point. And I don't say that flippantly, given the kind of injustice that's been done. There's an even bigger point, which is that it's not really Adam who sins. It's not really Eve who sins. It's me. The important thing about the Garden of Eden 
is not whether it happened in this bit of modern-day Iraq or that bit. Did it happen 4,000 years ago or 40,000 years ago? How far back in history? It's not even, did it actually happen? Is it just a story to illustrate the truth of God's word? Or did it actually happen and it does illustrate it as well? That's not the point. The point is, it happens every day to every one of us. We are tempted and we fall short of the glory of God. It keeps on happening. The consequence of the fall, let's just contrast before and after. Adam and Eve had been feeling no shame. But now they are ashamed to the point where they try to cover themselves up with leaves which don't work and they hide behind trees trying to hide from God who sees everywhere. Adam has a chance here. We never know what would have happened if Adam had played this differently. But he had a chance to confess his sin, sin, to try to repent from it. God asks, where are you? Probably not so much about location as spiritually. What's gone on? Where are you? Are you close to me? And Adam completely deflects away from that. He doesn't say, I've done something wrong. I'm so sorry. And the consequence of eating the fruit is I realize I'm naked and I'm hiding from you as well. Because that's the important bit, isn't it? The fact that he's taken that fruit. No, he just says, I realize I'm naked, so I've hidden. I'm just not going to mention the fact that I've got something massively wrong in the first place. And it goes on. He goes from trying to just deny it to trying to shift the blame. First of all, he tries to blame it on the woman. How often do we see that still? It was the woman, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then he adds to it on the next slide, just insert those missing words. It was the woman who you, God, you placed her in the garden with me. It's your fault, God. How often do we do that? God says that he never puts us in a situation which tempts us beyond what we're able to cope with. And that is truth. But sometimes we give in and we blame others or we blame God. Eve goes one further. She starts blaming the serpents for the fact that she did it and that Adam did it. That one doesn't work either. They don't repent. They don't deal with their sin constructively. And the consequence of this, previously they had been present with God face to face in the garden and they had been destined to live forever. But the consequence is they're barred from the garden. We're about to see they're chucked out completely out of the garden that has God's presence in it and out of the garden that has the tree of life in it. So now they are destined to die. They're destined to die a physical death, but also they've already died a spiritual death. And this death, it's not a natural thing. It's not what was intended. It's a punishment because mankind got things wrong and went away from God's perfect purposes for us. It's not what we are destined for. And we're about to see that Jesus gives us a better way. He's going to give us back the chance of life. So, having had a look at that, knowing what Adam, representing all the mankind, is like, we can now compare and contrast that with Christ. And the first thing, just that idea of pattern, we're going to see later in the series that God puts in place 
prophets, kings, priests, as kind of pointers towards what Christ is going to be like. They are patterns. Actually, Adam is meant to do all three of those as well. As a priest, you were allowed to go into the presence of God and you had to make sacrifices on behalf of others. Adam lived in the garden in the presence of God. But he mugged it up and got chucked out. And we're about to see he has to have a sacrifice made for him. He gets that one wrong. Adam's meant to be a king. God asks him to mediate his kingly rule in the garden. He names the animal and he's meant to have dominion over all of creation. But it goes wrong. And creation rules over Adam instead. And Adam's destined to die and return to dust. He gets that wrong. And he's meant to be a prophet. He's been given the very words of God. God's given him a message. He was meant to pass that on and help out Eve. And he failed in that one too. Whereas Christ, he is the perfect priest. Hebrews says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent. He has no need to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Jesus is a perfect priest, whereas Adam and mankind failed miserably at it. Adam was meant to rule over creation. Jesus does rule over all of creation, as well as being the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. When he was here in bodily form on the earth, Jesus ruled over creation in a way that Adam never did. The wind and the waves obeyed him. He could turn the water into wine and a few loaves and a few fishes into a feast for thousands. He could walk on the water. He was truly the king over creation. And he is a prophet. Jesus speaks the words of God because he is God. But actually, in the same way that Adam got it wrong when being tested... That's when Jesus also succeeds. So just zooming in on that a bit, I think there's a deliberate pattern between the way that the temptation comes to Adam and Eve and how it comes to Jesus. First of all, Adam and Eve are asked, will you just provide for yourselves? I know you're allowed all that fruit, but just go and have that piece there. Just go and get it for yourselves. Take it yourselves. Whereas Jesus was told, why don't you go and take those stones and turn them into bread for yourself? It's not again, there's nothing in the word of God that says don't do that. Adam and Eve crumbled and took that fruit. Jesus stood strong and didn't, despite the fact that Adam and Eve were doing this in the midst of a paradise with food all around them, they got it wrong. Jesus is doing this in the wilderness, having fasted for 40 days and doesn't give in. The second way that Adam and Eve have been tempted is that questioning of God's word. We've already said, I mean, can you really not have anything from any of the trees at all? None of the fruit? Just twisting what God has said. The devil does the same thing to Jesus. Will his angels really save you if you jump? I mean, if you don't jump, you're kind of saying you don't trust God, aren't you? So I think you've got to jump. Jesus stays strong where Adam fouled. And lastly, the timing and kind of the rules. Adam and Eve are told, 
You can take a shortcut. You can be like God now. Take the shortcut, take that fruit, and you will understand good and evil. And they took the shortcut. The devil said to Jesus, just bow down and worship me, and I will make you king of all of the nations, and you don't have to go through the cross. Have the glory without the suffering. Adam and Eve took the shortcut. Jesus stood firm. Adam and Eve twisted the word of God. Jesus quoted the word of God back at Satan and did not succumb to temptation. But, I mean, this leaves us with a bit of a problem, really. Adam and Eve have got it all wrong. And in contrast, Jesus is getting it all right. But we're mankind. Adam represents us. Adam literally means man. Later on in Genesis, when it talks about man covering the face of the earth, the word in the original thing, Adam covered the face of the earth, because it means mankind. We're in that camp. What's going to do? What's going to happen to fix this? And this is where that promise kicks in. Hopefully we will get up uh, the next slide with a bit of um, Genesis 3.15 onwards on it. This is just bits and pieces Okay, I want to focus really on the first bit. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then this promise of Jesus. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And a couple of bits that come up later. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return, is promised to Adam. And then after that, after the judgment, and the Lord God made for Adam his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And right at the end, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, huge fighting angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There is a promise there that one of Eve's offspring will come and will crush the head of the snake. The snake's identified, the serpent's identified in the New Testament as being the devil. And one day, the offspring of Eve and genealogies of Jesus, some of them go back literally to the uh, the son of Adam, the son of God. Some of them go back through the women all the way to Eve. Jesus comes to crush the head of the snake and therefore to reverse the effects of the fall. This text, this one verse, 315, has been called the first gospel. It's the first promise. It shows us that the plan is in place from day one. The cross is not a last minute rescue plan, hatched up when everything else God has planned has gone wrong. It's planned from the very start. The gospel is all the way through the Old Testament. When Jesus created all things, he created it knowing what it would cost him. So there's a plan to rescue us, but how does it work? Again, there is a pattern, there is a hint of what that's going to look like, which will get developed over the rest of the Bible. 
Adam had been ashamed. He tried to hide. He tried to hide his sin, but he still felt guilty. But God graciously, he doesn't have to, he chooses to out of his loving kindness. God graciously provides animal skins to mankind in his need. And just think about what that means. A substitute had to die to give Adam and Eve clothing made from animal skins An innocent substitute had to die. There had to be shedding of blood for that to happen. And then even though they've been trying to hide their sin, by hiding behind leaves, hiding behind trees, God effectively gives them a covering over that that actually works. He gives them the righteousness of another. And that points to what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to be the perfect substitute, completely innocent. His blood will be shed for us. But one better than this, mankind won't be left left with all these dirty sins underneath and just get something, I mean, animal skins, not particularly nice on the top, hiding the sins better. Our sins are taken away completely. They are pinned to the cross forever. We are made innocent And then Jesus' righteousness, the perfect life he led, is given to us in their place. It goes even one better than this early description. I think we need to think about the fact that those leaves didn't work and those leaves could never work. And I want to ask you today, even if you have been covered in the righteousness of Christ, all your sins have been forgiven... Are you living in the light of that? Or are you still trying to hide your sins, to make up for your shortcomings and try to get those leaves in place that are just comical and do not work? Are those leaves your good works? Is it what you do for church? Is it what you do for your family, what you do in your job? Do you try to do great things there because you feel inadequate otherwise? Or have you grasped hold of the fact that there's nothing you can do to hide the sin, but Jesus has taken it completely and you don't need to. You can't strive to get there. It's a gift. Just to finish off, there's a couple of um, uh, bits of text from the New Testament coming up. I'm not going to read them out word for word. They're just going to be in the background, hopefully, as we go through the comparison that Paul makes between Adam and Christ to sum up what's gone on. Adam is described as the first human. He's the representative head of humanity. But the image of God has been marred and broken in him because he has fallen. Everyone under Adam is therefore under the power of sin and under the penalty of death. Whereas the New Testament describes Christ as the second Adam. His humanity is just as real as Adam's. Just because he's fully God, that doesn't mean he's not fully human. Just because he doesn't sin, that doesn't mean he's not fully human. In fact, it means he's more human than us. He's not had that bit of humanity broken in the first place. His humanity shown in his birth, his death, but also in his resurrection. Humanity was not destined to die and stay dead. Jesus has risen again, true humanity shining through. Christ is head of a new humanity, a redeemed one, born from the gift of grace 
and give him freedom to live instead. The reason Adam is head of humanity under the power of sin and death is that he asserted his own rights. He said, I'm doing things my way. And that marked the historic entry of death into the world. To quote from the New Testament, all people are in Adam and therefore in sin, and therefore in Adam all die. But Christ, instead of grabbing onto his own rights, he's humble. He takes on the very nature of a servant and he displays self-sacrifice. And in doing so, he opens up a way for mankind to be rescued from the dead. Again, quoting the New Testament. So in the same way that all those who were in Adam shared Adam's fate, all those who were in Christ share Christ's resurrection. All those who are in Christ shall be made alive. To conclude... As well as a general introduction to the series, we kind of looked at the entire message of the Bible, but that's because it just comes up again and again and again. We've seen that humanity started off perfect, unfallen, but through our own decision, we sinned and separated ourselves from God, but God promised a rescue. He promises that he's going to take us back to dwelling one day with Christ, with God, walking and talking with him face to face. We also promise that we'll be dancing with him, and that there'll be no more tears, no more alienation, no more condemnation, and no more death. Revelation sums up where we're going to, and it's perfection. It's like the garden again, only even better. And the New Testament says, what Adam got wrong, Christ got it more right. Christ more than fixed it. He made it better than it was to start with. There's a couple of applications I think we should make from this. The first is, you need to think about where you stand. If you're characterised by sin, by guilt, by being divided from God, then actually you're in Adam and there is a better choice. You can choose to be in Christ. In which case, your sin and your guilt will be covered absolutely by righteousness. They'll be removed from you as a result of Jesus crushing Satan, which happened on the cross. It's a done deal. It's there on offer. There might be people here today who can make that choice and move from a kingdom of death to a kingdom of life. Paul finishes off the section in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying... Therefore, in response to all of this, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. And the second application, I think, is for those of us who are living as part of the new humanity, who are living in Christ, but seem sometimes to act as if we're still under Adam. Stuart brought that word earlier, which ties in with this. I'm going to reread that first bit. I'm not asking now about whether you are under Adam. I'm asking, do you act? Do you feel as if you are? If you're characterized by feeling guilt for sin, by feeling divided from God, by feeling not good enough for him, 
then you are living a lie. You are saved. God treasures you. And I'd really urge you to come and get prayer and get release into the freedom that Christ has brought you on the cross. And lastly, Paul goes on to say, therefore, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Literally, straight up, God's word says, because of this fantastic message, what you need to do now is you do need to labour for the Lord. You do need to work for him. You do need to offer up your lives as a living sacrifice for him. Not because it gives you leaves you can hide behind. That won't work. But because he has done it all for you already. If you're feeling a bit jaded, if you've tried helping out, if you've tried getting stuck in, if you've tried spreading the word of God, if you're feeling that it's just not worked so far, I feel God is calling us back to giving our lives up utterly for him. He has done everything for us. Don't let earthly disappointments get in the way. Come get equipped to minister and serve the Lord today.